Well, that's one of the key elements of how neoliberalism gets manifested within black politics. Um, and part of what gets part of a critical aspect of neoliberalism is the narrowing of politics to just a very formal elect, form of electoral politics and the rejection of radical politics, the rejection of mass mobilization, the re rejection of civil disobedience. Um, so that what has been historically a wide range of approaches to black politics become narrowed down to a very, very, very formal and actually very ineffective for black people form of politics. So that's certainly part of, of the neoliberal racial order. You're absolutely right about that. Hey folks, this is Stephen Pitts, host of Black Work Talk, an organizing upgrade podcast. Here we take a look at efforts around the country to build the collective power of black workers. Today our guest is Michael Dawson. Michael is a professor of political science at the University of Chicago. But that title doesn't capture the breadth nor depth of Michael's work. Michael can analyze public opinion survey data with the best of them. Equally important, he can place that data in its proper context of history and theory. Michael has written extensively about the intertwined nature of black politics and left politics. Currently, he co-leads the race and capitalism project that seeks to understand how the racial and capitalist systems of domination interact. And all of this work is grounded in his years of labor and community activism. I really appreciated our dive into the idea of a neoliberal racial order that speaks not only about the racialized nature of our society, but also how some of our friends see racial justice through the lens of neoliberalism and this viewpoint restricts the reach of our freedom struggle. Enjoy our conversations. But I do want to remind you that we need your support. Here at Black Work Talk, we are committed to developing a vibrant conversation, bringing you the key voices building Black worker power in the workplace and in the neighborhoods. Bringing the best guests and the most timely discussions takes resources. We depend upon people power to grow. So please go to Patreon to make a financial contribution, large or small, and become part of our community to support the work we do here at Black Work Talk. Black Work Talk comes to you via Organizing Upgrade, an online space created to strengthen social movements. If you appreciate Black Work Talk, check out Organizing Upgrade's weekly live show, Frontline Dispatches. The show spotlights organizers and activists at ground zero of fights for racial justice and economic justice. Like Black Work Talk, it gives the mic to people with worlds of insight who you might not hear elsewhere. You can catch it on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Central, and 4 p.m. Pacific, or anytime on Organizing Upgrade's Facebook page. Mark, how you doing, man? Pretty good. How you doing, Stephen? Okay, it's getting hot weather in Chicago now? It's getting it hot? It is summer. We went from winter to summer, no spring. <laughs> Sounds good. Um, this week should be warm out here. I think, think the, the lowest high temperature will be in the 70s, which is good for the Bay. And I still have old Chicago roots. I enjoy warm weather. I'm looking forward to it. But this has been a strange time politically, man. This has been kind of crazy. It really has know? been. It's been probably the most disruptive times in my life, I would say. So if you had to describe it real briefly, how would you describe the period today? I, I won't use the historical analogy I usually use, but 
we're in a period of where basic systems are breaking down, uh, intense political polarization and conflict um, with um, authoritarian and nearly fascist impulses becoming a integral part of the political system, but also with a fair amount of resistance developing at local and regional and some cases national levels. So we're in a period where we can see a extremely strong move to the right with authoritarian and fascist institutions, or we can see uh, progressive uh, rebirth in this country, but we're at that cusp right now. And it's, it could be, it's an area of intense political, social, and economic conflict. Now, I remember back um, when we were kids, um, and a lot of times we said that with fascism come to America, it come wrapped up in the American flag. Yes. And you kind of see that you see it happening. I mean, then it's kind of a slogan right now. You see what's happening because people, in in the under the guise of protecting democracy, they're attacking it, and it's it's seen as kind of amazing as, as it goes forward. I think actually right now it's not even under the guise of protecting democracy. Um, I think, um, for example, many in the Republican Party no longer consider that a core value. Now, it, what they are saying is protecting the U.S., protecting America, going back to the way we were. So it's wrapped up in the flag, but I don't think it's wrapped up in democracy anymore. Democracy means those other people can get, get, to, get to rule, and we, don't, we know they shouldn't be part of, of what America is. Yeah, they aren't, they aren't really nope. Americans, huh? You know, when I look at your stuff, man, you've um, done a lot of writing, research, and thinking in really deep ways about black politics. And you, know, you alluded to kind of the, the resistance, there's been this phenomenal increase in black activism, you know. Um, I want to get a sense of how you see that level of black activism, in particular, the relationship between the black left and black liberals. You know, at some point you talked about the neoliberal racial order, which is a fascinating term. So I want, thought maybe we could talk a bit about that a little bit. So first define what we mean by a, a neoliberal racial order. Excuse me. So there's two parts of that. Let's start with racial order. And what I mean by that is that there is a racial hierarchy, in the, well, globally, but, but certainly very much been a part of the foundations of this country um, since before its founding, where there are privileges based on race, there are types of violence associated with racial oppression, and there are roles that different racial groups are supposed to play. Um, that's, that's a racial order. It's a type of social structure, um, like capitalism is a social order, like patriarchy is a social order. Um, and then the neoliberal part is a belief that market norms and policies should be govern everything from, from artistic institutions, academic institutions, um, uh, carceral institutions, every institution in society should be governed by market principles. Um, and sometimes this is mistakenly called free market, but there's nothing free about these markets. Um, what is set up is a set of protections for various types of expropriation and exploitation with, with the shutting down of the social welfare state so that everything becomes privatized. Um, and what we see in this particular period is a type of financial capitalism where debt, credit, and risk are as important as commodity production. So we see, a, we see a capitalism centered on finance and expropriation. We see the state as being an instrument, both in terms of both normal exp expropriation for, for capitalism, but also um, expropriation along the lines of race, like in Ferguson, Missouri. 
And that's where a neoliberal racial order is a combination of a type of governing structure associated with modern capitalism with a racial order at, at its core. Now, I first heard that term from you. I, I thought something else as well, that, that maybe I kind of put my thoughts in your mouth and see what, how that rolls. But it's also how people view solving race yes. problems. That sometimes people try to solve racial problems within the context of the current order. And sometimes people try to disrupt that order in solving the racial problems. And it seems to me that, that when I think of the, t the idea of this neoliberal racial order, it's not just the racialized element of neoliberalism. It's also how people who, I'll say, are on our side on racial justice try to solve these problems well. that's as well. one of the key elements of how neoliberalism gets manifested within Black politics. Um, and part of what gets, part of a critical aspect of neoliberalism is the narrowing of politics to just a very formal elect, form of electoral politics and the rejection of radical politics, the rejection of mass mobilization, the re rejection of civil disobedience. Um, so that what has been historically a wide range of approaches to black politics become narrowed down to a very, very, very formal and actually very ineffective for black people form of politics. So that's certainly part of the, of the neoliberal racial order. You're absolutely right about that. So that gets back to my question or my statement I made in terms of the relationship between the black left and black liberals. I think a lot of times, and I know you've you about, written about this before, I want to kind of guess a deep dive into a little bit deeper, that a lot of times because of the depth of racial hatred and the nature of racial exploitation and oppression, the strategies to fight back are kind of blurred. And so we think, think the current kind of upsurge in activism um, because of the police murders. Almost every black person can breathe is against the black, the, the murders, yes, right? Yes, most. But still the differences amongst, if they, yeah, you can breathe, yeah. Um, some can breathe and still not be against black murder, you're right. But how do you see the distinction between the black left and black liberals? Well, a key aspect of that difference is what do we think is the source of poverty in black and other communities? What do we think is the source of unemployment? What do we think is the possibility for economic advancement? And that comes down to... Um, I was told by a colleague in the Harvard Black Studies Department that I was old-fashioned because I, because I still believe that there were structural reasons that black people were poor. As well, this person was saying, if you were prepared, you're not going to be poor. Um, this is a very famous... Can, can, can we name names or not yet? Well, not today. it's say this is a very famous black person. If you know anything about black studies in the United States, you know who it is. <laughs> we'll leave it at that. And with your grin, I'm pretty sure you know who I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> but that said, um, do we think there is systemic elements to poverty and other forms of oppression in black communities? That's one difference between the black left and, and, and black liberals. Secondly, what are the solutions? And if the solutions mean dismantling aspects of capitalism, that's something the black left and actually most black people are quite comfortable with, but which black liberals are very much not comfortable with to, to, to a degree. Um, to what degree are we okay with tokenism of various forms? Um, 
and I'm including myself in that. I, I'm a professor at an elite university. Um, but is that a is that the standard of progress we should we use, or should we think about the seventy to eighty percent of Black folks who are struggling on day by day and use that as a, as a metric for for progress or lack thereof? I think about the, the kind of current upsurge, and you had beyond just the, the demonstrations and, and so forth. And to me, there was a deeply felt upsurge that took place, that yes. taking place since, since George Floyd was, was murdered. But you saw that you had the kind of the spectacle in some ways of cities painting on streets Black Lives Matter. And, and you had mayors who, prior Black mayors, who prior to the upsurge had very complicated relationships with the larger black community in their cities who were very f forcefully talking about Black Lives Matter and these are structural changes. So how do you see the whole question of, of um, approaches to black freedom and left liberalism kind of working its way through this current Black Lives Matter moment? Well, I think, I mean, first of all, we, sh we, we should remember we're at the beginning of, of an upsurge. Um, and how it develops, we can't predict, but if it goes in a good direction, we'll see what we saw in the past, which is that liberals will become more progressive as the movement becomes wider, deeper, and more militant itself. So what we often see when it comes to black pro progress is the liberals are not the ones that are leading, um, but they are pulled along. Um, often with um, a more progressive tendency within black politics. Now, that might get turned on its head a bit in this era due to the spread of neoliberal ideology among so many, such a wide portion of the black middle class and black elites. Um, and also due to the weakness of organizations like unions um, and, and black presence within unions being weaker than, say, than it was in the 60s and 70s. Um, but in general, what I would say is that it's not a surprise that it wasn't just black mayors and black elected officials that started moving along behind, let's say, the movement for black lives or and the many organizations that were spawned during that period. But it was also even the corporate America tried to um, throw in a token here, a token there, whether it's the NBA or, or other entities. Now, in an article I was reading in prepping for, for this conversation, um, you paraphrase Robin Kelly. And, you, and basically, it's roughly just saying something like the, the Black progressive presence is necessary just to take on the Black 1%. Do you remember writing that? You, you still want to own up to that? or you... I don't remember writing it, but I certainly would own up to it. <laughs> <laughs> So, so the guy made me do it, but I, I, I'll, I'll say yeah, I agree. Um, so, I mean, partial inclusion into the upper class, into the bourgeoisie, until, uh, into the monopoly capitalist class and, and various elites associated with those classes has been a part of Black social development going back to the days of Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois. Um, there's always been room for a few black people who will either allow themselves to represent 
themselves as being representative of true progress for black people when it's only like one people, person or one family or a few families and or are willing to do the work to keep other black folks down. So that, that is a form of inclusion that has been with us a pretty long time. When you say that, I wonder, like a lot of our, some many of the way people, we look at the issues of racial disparities, it's sometimes almost as if the goal is to integrate every element of, of the larger society. And so we have more integrated 99%, more integrated 1%. And I think about that in the context of like housing, for instance, right? That a lot of times the, the threats towards more home ownership actually ignores the larger issues of blacks in the housing market. And the question of, do you want to still produce housing as we're currently producing it? And so when I hear this idea of taking on the 1%, to me, it's, it's, it's not just taking on physically a slice of population, it's kind of looking at the larger society stuff and the structures and trying to make sure they're not maintained. Um, so, Maki, you, you've talked about the fact that today the Black civil society is weaker than it was in the 50s and 60s. How do we define Black civil society? And do you still think it's weaker now than it was, say, 30, 40, 50 years ago? So Black civil society uh, emerged out of uh, the period that followed Reconstruction. Um, it's... It, the institutions that uh, Black people um, participate in day by day, whether it's, it, whether it's the family, whether it's places of worship, whether it's uh, labor groups, whether it's um, the type of reading groups and dis discussion clubs that Black women activists dealt with at the turn of the 20th century, um, Black political organizations um, locally. So it's a set of institutions, organizations that tie black folks together. Um, reason is black civil society is because after reconstruction, um, the state very strongly encouraged and mandated segregation so that even to this day, blacks and whites don't go to the same churches. They don't socialize with each other by and large. We know this from a lot of empirical data collected over many decades and up until and including today. The reason I said the time, I think this was 10 to 15 years ago that it was weaker was one is some of those institutions themselves are weaker. Um, the, um, um, black places of worship, black churches were um, uh, weaker, not the type of mass participatory organization that they had been during much of the 20th century. Black labor organizations were weaker. Um, with, the, with the growing hegemony of neoliberalism within black politics, um, there was a less of a diversity of political voices. Um, black radical voices became much weaker, both institutionally and within terms of the type of discourse that was being produced in, within black politics. Um, so that's why I said it was weaker at the time. Um, there was some pushback, uh, particularly from some younger scholars who argued that a lot of what I argued was uh, the type of discourse that came out of black civil society in the 20th century had moved online. Uh, whether it was with black Twitter or other social media. And that's partly true, but I also think we have, we've done enough research now to know that um, social media is not a substitute for the type of day-to-day -day organizing on the streets um, that, we, that we did in the past. It's complemented greatly. 
it can enhance it greatly, but cannot be a substitution for it. So while I think black civil society is still probably weaker, particularly institutionally, than it was, let's say, in the 60s and maybe to a lesser degree in the 70s, um, I do think it's getting stronger in a number of ways, and partly due to the type of activism and surge that we've seen um, over the past year and actually since um, the murder of Trayvon Martin. The whole question of um, taking an important concept back to civil society and trying to apply it, not, not mechanically, but in, in a very dynamic way across time is really important to do. I, I've heard the same stories that, that, that clearly is different now than before. I, my leaning is that it's actually still a bit weaker as well. Um, I, I couldn't like prove that, quote unquote. But I think it's important because I think that when I think of the idea that you mentioned about civil society, those are kind of the the the, the things that stitch us together that allow us to take to to deal with the attacks that we take face on a daily basis. And I think it allows us to push back because we have this notion of a community. Yeah. And it seems to me when you don't have those strong communal bonds, it's harder to push back in a collective way. And I thought about the Amazon, the Amazon fight in Alabama. You know, and so question of well, we know that Amazon is going to attack the attempt to organize workers, they're going to threaten people and so forth, and I, and what allows folk to kind of weather those blows is some sense of a community we shall overcome, type thing, and I think that we have weaker civil societies and weaker communal bonds, then people more easily will go to their own decision on what to do around unionization and voting. And we don't have the kind of the, kind of the weaponization of communities thrust isn't there. So I think it's a really important idea to figure out and understand. And it's not just the idea of how we get information, but it's how we build bonds to, 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 to support our, our, our survival in many ways and going forward. Um, I think that's an as, a social aspect of neoliberalism that a lot of us haven't paid enough attention to, and I'm including myself, which is even when we think about the public housing projects um, of the 20th century, there were um, daycare um, networks in those in those in those projects. There were tenant organizations in those projects, and those projects were taken apart, um, and those communities were scattered to to a significant degree. So, um, when we look at different classes of African Americans, um, social classes we see a lot weaker institutional um, presence. And you said a lot, both institutionally and spiritually, a lot weaker sense of community than, than we had. Michael, I hadn't thought about until you mentioned it, is this notion of civil society across different communities, different classes, rather. And just wondering now, since it's fully off the top of my head, could be fully crazy or fully half on point or fully brilliant. Who knows, right? But the idea that if you have a reduction in kind of a all-class black civil society, or to rephrase, if you have a destruction or erosion of, at different classes, the kind of black communal bonds, then you might have black folks with resources having their own sets of communal ties linked to non-blacks, while poorer blacks would have lost of old ties. You mentioned networks and housing projects. And it's hard to develop new ties. And then in some ways that more 
adrift compared to other classes. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Yeah, I think two things are happening based on what you just said and what I was trying to work out on the fly a second earlier ago. One is that there's been, I think, a pretty well documented by black sociologists um, decline in multi-class organizations and institutions. But also, I, I think we, I would also argue that working class and the type of institutions in very poor communities are also weaker than, than they were before. Um, so that well, we, one of the things we've seen, and I've seen this in some of the organizing I was doing maybe 10 years ago, um, is people saying, I have to work three jobs, I have three kids, I can't go to a meeting. And the type of networks that for we're able to cope with some of those, well, two types of things happen. One is the type of jobs that we used to have in the black working class that would support a family have disappeared, whether they're public sector jobs or private sector jobs. They're not there anymore. Um, and they've been replaced by service, service sector jobs that are much less um, remunerative, much harder to support, support a family. And the second thing is people are on their own more than they were before. Wow. The whole notion of, of looking at civil society stratified by classes, I really want to dive deeper. Not now, by the way, but just kind of want to think more about the idea. I think it's really an important one I hadn't thought about before. You know, earlier we talked about this idea of, of a neoliberal racial order. I want to get your take on the Biden administration, not the details, but more this notion. Most of us have been surprised what was Biden done. You know, we would not, if we had put in a, in a document what we thought his first 100 days would be like, we would not have predicted these first 100 days, I think. Some people take that and they speculate what it means. Is Biden new FDR? Those sort of things, right? And some people have raised the question of, does the pandemic and the issue of the fight back around police murders and the response by the Biden administration, does things come together to mark the end of neoliberalism itself? What's your take on that? Well, I'm a little bit more pessimistic, I think, because certainly I I'm one of a legion of people who are not have predicted the policy proposals that have come out of the Biden administration. I totally agree with that part of it. But the willingness and the sort of slavish devotion to bipartisanship that is stalling any movement on infrastructure, climate change, um, voting rights uh, within Congress, I think that I would have predicted from Biden, uh, a Biden administration. So what I think we're seeing is a, um, a progressive surge. Um, and I'll probably even take it back to 2007, 2008, um, and the Great Recession, um, where we are talking about economic inequality again. We are talking about racial injustice again. We are talking about the murders of black people again. And we are talking about um, an existential threat to humanity through a pandemic um, and how the state has failed in many ways to, and, and corporate America has failed to respond to it in the first part of it. Um, so in that sense, there are mobilized forces in a lot of different places, some of which are coming together for the first time in a long time. You are getting um, very left candidates um, elected to city councils in places like Chicago and New York City, um, Seattle. But at the same time, 
The forces of neoliberalism are still there. They're still extraordinarily well-resourced. They are politically powerful. And one of the first lessons you learn in political science is that implementation is where you can mess up anything. Any agenda can be messed up in implementation. And we haven't even passed laws yet, um, let alone trying to implement them. So I, so I think we're, we're, I mean, for example, within the Democratic Party, there is a fight at both the local, I mean, there's a vicious fight locally inside the Democratic Party in Chicago right now um, between progressive forces around questions like police reform and school board and education and the mayor and the forces she represents on the other hand. So what I think we're seeing is a fight between the neoliberal and the progressive wings in the Democratic Party. Um, and I'm not so sure how that's going to turn out, at least at the national level. I think there might be more success at some of the local levels. Yeah, yeah I think it's important to distinguish, well, one, that, to recognize that, that the Democratic Party is not a monolith. You know, it's a coalition mm-hmm. of a lot of forces. Yep. And then also... It's not. It's different on different levels of governments, national, state, local, and so forth. And I'm more attuned to local stuff. And I think about the whole question of local economic development. And you still see, well, you might have some pushback around the question of, of policing and creeping into education. You haven't seen the same sort of pushback and drown a question of economic development. And we still see cities driving to get stadiums, get an Amazon warehouse, and those sort yeah. of things. And I think that, and I know people aren't doing it consciously, on time, policing, education, that kind of development. But I strongly believe that if you have, I'll call it traditional view of economic development, that means more stadiums, more warehouses, bring middle-class people back to downtown areas, you can't solve the problem of policing or education. Um, because what's gonna happen is that those kind of new areas that's been spawned up, They'll be, they want, they'll be protected from the other. That's the role of the police. And yes. so I, just, I, I think about the whole question of neoliberalism and today's activism from a local lens and want to see more and more discussion and practice around the question of a new way of building cities and building states. That's super important. Um, I think a, a, a lot of people are, and I, I've been guilty of this, um, have been extraordinarily, and the, the, the right has been very good at this, is not paying enough attention to the, to the state level. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Michael, one time you said, maybe I, I honed in on a point, there's two final points, so feel free to dismiss it and keep on, keep on talking. But one time I thought you said that it's not racial capitalism, it's race and capitalism. Now, was that a fine hair splitting going on, or was it an important distinction between on one hand, racial capitalism. On the other hand, race and capitalism. So there are three terms that are being used a lot in the literature these days. Racialized capitalism, which is particularly being used in Europe, but is also being used in the U.S. Um, racial capitalism and race and capitalism. So... Race and capitalism is the one that I am currently favoring and trying to develop an analytical framework. And part of what I'm arguing is that there are multiple systems of domination, uh, white supremacy, capitalism, and patriarchy that are that interact with each other in, in important ways. But they each have their own sets of logics, their own sets of privileges, uh, privileged categories and oppressive categories, their own 
each has a set of violences that are uh, um, part of the oppression that are associated and, and specific to that form of domination. A lot of people who write about, I'm not talking about Cedric Robinson so much, but so in, the, in the modern era of people writing about racial capitalism, racialized capitalism, they're talking about racism and racialization occurring within the capitalist uh, system. So they're not talking so much about uh, racial domination as a separate, and in fact, in, in its own right, um, uh, potentially inherently revolutionary um, um, set of set of uh, objectives, but as a process that occurs within capitalism. Now, to some degree, that's hair splitting, um, because most I would consider, you know, even within the the recent capitalism project within which I work within. There, there are people from all three camps within the project, um, and it's not like there's two lines struggle around this at all. We're all just trying to figure this out. Um, but on the other hand, it's important to the degree that you think that there's um, independent structures of domination and oppression based around gender and race. Um, and that's actually is a conversation that's been had, at least among the left in the U.S., going back to the early 20th century and maybe even the late 19th century. Um, to what degree, um, for example, is the independent organizing against black oppression inherently progressive? So, um, so yeah. let's, let's say we have two political parties, the Dawson Party and the Pitts Party. <laughs> and, and the Pitts Party is animated by this notion of fighting racial capitalism. And the Dawson Party is animated by this idea of fighting race and capitalism. How do people see the differences in our practice, both in terms of how we organize the world and the campaigns we, we, we fight on? So, actually, this is a section I'm trying to write in a, in a chapter right now, is what are these differences? Now, if you told me what's the difference between Afro-Pessimism Party and, and either Dawson or Piss Party, I can tell you that real, real, very strong. <laughs> <laughs> very strong. What's the question on the table? What's the question on okay, the table? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, you won't let me deflect. Um, The question is, I'm not sure in practice yet, but I, but but in, but potentially a difference could be to the degree to which, for example, going back to when we were young, are you building a multiracial organization or are you building a black organization with socialist principles? Um, I think you should be doing both, by the way. But um, a Dawson party might emphasize one, and the Pitts party might 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 emphasize the other. That's a non-trivial question. Um, who do you look for in terms of allies? Who, who, who do you see as natural allies? To what degree um, are you seeking alliances um, with white workers? That might not be as much of a difference now, but it, it, it potentially could be a difference. Um, to what degree are you emphasizing organizing among women as a progressive, um, against patriarchy as, as a progressive, um, not, just, not just a progressive um, goal, but one that has equal standing with fighting against race and fighting against capitalism. So those are type of um, differences. I've been in both types of organizations, and the emphasis are quite different in terms of day-to-day -day practice. And wasn't trying to put you on the spot at all, man. Just, I just want to make, go back to the idea that in the day we're trying to change the world, not understand it, to paraphrase somebody, you know, and also a lot of time the actual work can crystallize the differences. Yeah, that, I agree. You know, we could have a, a debate between the Pitts Party and the Dawson Party, and either it sounds like the same thing, 
or we get into some nasty arguments over the glass of the bad man. So you must be therefore wrong. But if you actually talk about doing the work, all of a sudden, oh, that's what you're saying. That sounds cool. Or that's what you're saying. That sounds whack. So it's going to always bring it back to the practice and the work and being a clarifying, a clarifying idea. Um, and particularly um, people who are age should be very aware of that because there's very little like, more destructive than having um, deadly arguments over words with no, with, that's not attached to practice. Yeah, and, and it's important. Deadly wasn't a euphemism, by the way, when you said that. And that's important mm-hmm. to, to recognize that. But ever since that, as an outsider, as a, as a, a gray beard today, that you have similar fights going on today around um, what from afar may seem to be very much arcane differences, but people feel it very, very strongly. And that's the, um, my strongest advice is simply to do the work. Yeah. That, that, that work clarifies a whole lot, hell of a lot. And, we and don't find out what you can work. work on together and find out what you can work on together too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, one last sort of thing before we begin to land this airplane, Michael. Um, it kind of leads back to this notion of trying to clarify the distinctions. But but I saw you co-authored a piece that was reviewing Tommy Shelby's Dark Ghetto. And and you were at times very sympathetic to his analysis of some of the structural issues facing the black communities. And also you're sympathetic to his broad, broad prescriptions to solve the problems. But you raise question the details of the solutions themselves, though. And it, what, I've, what I picked up was this notion that if you didn't have a grounded view of plural economy and how it's linked to white supremacy, then a lot of what seems to be radical in your solutions aren't radical at all. And they reinforce the status quo. Did I get you right that, or is there something beyond that and those things? No, I, I no, you, you got that exactly right. Um, um, I think th- there was two or three major criticisms. Um, one was you can't talk about the type of radical uh, institutional change that he wants without talking about capitalism um, and the degree to which um, um, the current economic and political order benefit from the type of racial injustice that um, he wants to eliminate. Um, the uh, second is that, and this is, is from a conversation I had had with uh, with Shelby, is that the only time in the book that he deviates from trying to think use the real world as a starting place is when he talks about gen- about gender politics. And then he wants to talk about the ideal world, and therefore he's not he uh, since he says that he's privileging the position of a young black male, he is not thinking up through the real world burdens that young black women and black women in general have in the institutional context we have today, and what some of those changes might mean. And the third thing that um, I would criticize him on is that, and this is maybe because. I'm somewhat older and seen some things that he may not have seen, which is if you're trying to build a world, you have to build a world. You can't use, you have to be very careful about what you support in terms of what type of world you're making. Um, so, what do you, Mike, what do you mean by that? So, for example, um, if we're trying to build a just world, we have to then realize that if we're supporting artistic forms that um, glorify homophobia and misogyny, that we are in turn contributing to, to remaking or making a world that would be unjust. 
Um, so we have to think about what we do and don't support in light of the type of just goals that we we say we believe in. Believe in. I, I see what you're saying. That makes a lot of sense. And, and this whole question of understanding the political economy, I keep hearing, I keep thinking that's the missing some the current dialogue. Yes. You know, and I just want to keep pushing this notion that when we speak about you know, anti-black racism, um, it's always important to 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 think about what sort of political economy you want to have that support a freer world. And, um, and it's just insane that there are people who are still building political platforms, political programs based on a world where the where Detroit is still making cars, uh, where where you still live in a manufacturing industrial society as it was as if it was still 1955. Um, our our understanding of political economy has not advanced with changes in the global economy over the last 50 years. Oh, God. Let me throw something out there that we won't explore, I don't think, too much at all. But you're fully right. Different political economy. I think back to my understanding of, of Detroit in the 40s, and there's a massive plant at River Rouge mm-hmm. that had maybe 80,000 80, workers, 80,000 workers in one factory. That's not happening, Okay. Um, and so clearly we have a different sort of political economy, both in terms of of the structure production, it's located across space and those sort of things. However, or but, depending on how I want to look at it, right? The question is, how do you build communities of resistance? And I still think it's important to build sites of resistance in workplaces. And it may not be the same as before. It may not have the same sort of relative impact compared to other sites of resistance before, but I think it's really important to talk about having people organize in Amazon or in Walmarts. And they may not have the same power that UAW had back in the day, but still it's a site of resistance, a site of community building that we shouldn't forget about. No, I totally agree. And but and then we should and take that a step further. We just think about how do you um, organize day, day labor? Um, how do you organize domestic uh, domestic workers of, very, of various forms? So I definitely think that part of understanding c- contemporary political economy is, is where are the workers these days, and how do we organize them and not rely on a point in production model that you know that was the buzzwords of the 1960s and 70s. Um, I mean, the other thing I would say is that that I don't think you'll disagree, but you might, is that in addition to organizing workplaces, we have to think about other forms of economic activity that are central um, to these. So organize, um, around, organizing around debt is like a new area of organizing that I think is potentially extremely important. Organizing around, um, you live in Northern California. I'm sorry to hear I'm sorry for you, bro. Um, organizing around, around housing is another area. But there's other way we should be organizing around political economy and trying to figure out what are those places that we should be, where we should be, including workplaces, certainly. Fully correct. My one kind of point of caution is that oftentimes when we have those non-workplace place sites of struggle, which are super important, by the way, we don't have a structure on which to build community. You kind of have kind of, of self-selection. And so you care about housing, let's throw it down. You care about debt, let's throw it down, throw it down. And then we don't always build super majorities of people and give them emotion. And it's easy to talk about, got a workplace, we have 100 people, let's grab 80 and roll. When we talk about housing in the Bay Area, 7 million people, 
getting 100 people to roll isn't sufficient. And so mm -hmm. a lot of times when we don't have structures containing the work, we can get very much into modes of operations that don't involve large numbers of people. That's only my only concern there at all. One thing, a little commercial break from Michael Dawson. He had a phenomenal podcast, by the way. It's called Thank Racing you. Capitalism. And so I'll put the, I think it's that, I think the, the URL is www.racingcapitalism.com, one word. And the, pod, and the podcast is a new down podcast, which is on every platform. Okay, so it's not as good as mine, by the way, but it's just all right. <laughs> but seriously. Whatever. <laughs> but seriously, <laughs> you should check it out, though, man. Y'all should check it out. Let me wind things down a bit, Michael. Um, what was your aha moment got you in, into politics in, in a radical way? It might have been when I was 12 or 13 and traveling across the country uh, with my grandparents and every motel, I think, between Chicago and the Rocky Mountains had lost our reservations. Mm. <laughs> um, oh, they obviously saw it because, I guess, I don't know, because of how my uh, grandparents made the reservations that we were probably a white family. And when they realized we weren't, I was saying, oh, no, this shit ain't right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And there's a couple moments like that um, growing up in Chicago as well. Um, mm. um, there's a friend, of, a friend of ours in high school. Uh, we were on 53rd Street. We weren't doing anything, and the police just decided to take the car apart, couldn't find anything, and just left it apart. Oh, wow. Wow, 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 wow. Wow, those formative moments, yeah. Um, Ma'am, what books are you reading now? Um, I'm reading... A History of American Ca uh, Capitalism and by uh, Jonathan Levy. Um, I'm reading um, a book on white women um, as slaveholders. Uh, they, they were her property. Um, a few other things. Um, Justice is an Option um, by uh, Robert Meister. Those are some of the things I'm reading. That sounds cool. Sounds cool. How about music, man? What music kind of gets you moving? Almost on. anything but country music. So, but um, lately I've gone, um, I'm still waiting for Kendrick to drop something new. But be, until that happens, I've been listening to a lot of Train. Um, uh, there's a couple of new jazz albums I've been listening to that I, that I like quite a bit. Sounds good, man. Sounds good. You said anything but country. Uh, spoken like a true black Chicagoan. And that's the same instinct. That's very hard for me to get in the country. Very hard. This is one sister, though. Her name is Mickey Guyton. Um, she's a black woman. Um, not from Nashville, but she's kind of somehow got herself in the, the country genre. And she's speaking a lot about race and justice also. So maybe I'll creep out of my, creep into that, that genre as well. Who knows? But Michael, this yeah. great, man. Go, go, on. go on. I was just going to say, the one album I would recommend is by uh, Old Master, Do Dr. Lonnie Liston-Smith. But he has a new album called Breathe, which I highly recommend. Uh, Breathe? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, he, on the organ. Sounds very nice. We'll do that, okay? Mm -hmm. Michael, thanks a lot, man. This has been great. Hey, it's been good. Thanks, Stephen. We'll talk to you, okay? Yep. It was great to talk with Michael. His writings have always been thought-provoking, and I enjoyed being able to engage with Michael in ways I haven't before. I love the idea of the neoliberal racial order as a way to view black politics and want to explore more deeply issues of black politics, black civil society, and class differences within black civil society. I think a grounded understanding of these ideas 
can really enhance today's power building efforts. Thanks for joining me this week on Black Work Talk. I hope this podcast can grow to become part of the network of our movement for change. We need your help as we build the Black Work Talk community. Please subscribe to the podcast wherever you find your podcasts and go to Patreon to become a sustainer. And beyond the financial support, I would love to hear from you. What do you think of the show? Any suggestions for future guests or future topics to explore? Please let me know. Reach out to me at stephen at blackworktalk.com and I promise to get back to you. Until the next episode, stay safe and be well.